Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, where healthcare meets business, with your host, me, Dr. Karen Litzy. And just as a reminder, the information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not to be used as personalized medical advice. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Dr. Karen Litzy, owner of Karen Litzy Physical Therapy in New York City. But today, I am not your host for this particular episode. The wonderful Dr. Stephanie Wyrock is back hosting today's episode, and her guest is Dr. Kenneth Zweig from Northern Virginia Family Practice. His focus on sleep disorders and hypertension go hand in hand with his mission to improve patient health through behavior change. He also helps patients improve their overall mental and physical health through a holistic approach to treatment that focuses on nutrition, exercise, and managing stress. He is an assistant professor at both Georgetown and George Washington University Medical Schools. Prior to joining MVFP, he served 15 years at General Medicine Internal Group in Arlington and was on the board for the Health Connect Accountable Care Organization. He volunteered at the Virginia Hospital Center Honduras Medical Brigade to provide health care to remote villages in Honduras. He did his undergraduate work at the University of Michigan Medical School at The Ohio State University and residency at Georgetown University. So today, Stephanie and Dr. Zweig are talking about how primary care providers uh, can work with other healthcare professionals, how they define how Dr. Zweig defines healthy what proper uh, sleep hygiene, how that can impact health, and a whole lot of other uh, really valuable information, especially how you can optimize your sleep quality, which we all need these days. So thank you to Dr. Zweig, and of course, thank you to Dr. Stephanie Wyrock uh, for hosting today's episode. Enjoy, everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Wyrock. I'm guest hosting today, and I'm joined by Dr. Ken Zwing, and he's out of uh, the D.C. area. He, fo- he focuses on sleep disorders and hypertension and um, works with patients to improve their overall health, mental, mental and physical health through a holistic approach to treatment that focuses on nutrition, exercise, and managing stress. He's an assistant professor at both Georgetown and George Washington University Medical Schools, and he's been uh, a, he's been serving as a phys- general practice physician at General Medicine Internal Group PC in Arlington, and currently is with a new practice, which I think he'll talk about in our interview today. Um, he has volunteered for multiple uh, medical organizations to make sure that healthcare is accessible um, across. Um, the country. And uh, today, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk a little bit about preventative health care. This is something that as physical therapists, we're really passionate about. And it's always nice to have our physician partners on board to help us really optimize patient health. So uh, Dr. Zwang, thanks for joining us today. And um, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your background. I kind of gave a little introduction, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Okay, sure. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. I appreciate being here. And I, I, I love your little sidekick is joining us as well. That's terrific. It's adorable. Um, so yeah, so I'll give you a little bit about my background. So I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, I'm a big fan of anything Pittsburgh. And uh, I think that had a big uh, part in how I became uh, interested in medicine. Uh, I have a very medical family. My dad is a doctor. I have uncles that are doctors. My brother, my older brother is a doctor. So it was sort of meant to be. Uh, and uh, I ended up going to undergrad at University of Michigan and then Ohio State University for medical school and then uh, to Georgetown uh, University for my residency, which is how I ended up in the D.C. area. And uh, so um, and since then, I've uh, just been practicing primary care and uh, I've been working on improving how I practice ever since. And so it's been, uh, you know, that's why they call it practice, because you never quite get it right, but you try to improve the whole, whole time you're doing it. And, uh, I think I've learned a lot along the way. And what's the current practice that you're in? What's the so name the of the current practice is called Northern Virginia Family Practice or NVFP. 
It is a primary care practice uh, with an office in DC and in Arlington, and it is a concierge practice. So uh, it is a practice where there's a membership model uh, with that, you know, we get to spend more time with our patients and be a little more attuned, get to know them better and uh, work on their problems more in depth uh, than I was really able to at a standard medical practice in the past. Yeah, your practice really focuses a lot on preventative health. So um, how did you become interested in preventative health and what led you down the pathway to um, go this route with your um, professional uh, professional life? Um, so uh, I think part of it probably, again, uh, goes back to Pittsburgh. Um, when I was growing up, my brother, who's much older, uh, ended up having diabetes, and so uh, type 1 diabetes. And so we were kind of forced as a family to stop having junk food in the house. And uh, as a young kid, uh, especially in a town that's somewhat built on junk food in Pittsburgh, <laughs> it was very devastating at the time. But looking back, you know, I learned really good eating habits growing up and realized that it's very doable and, and, and it doesn't mean that you have to suffer. And so um, I think that was part of it is just paying attention as a family rather than just by yourself and, and being raised in a situation where you can actually eat well. Um, we were also very active. And then as I went into medicine, I wanted to go into primary care, which is where you develop relationships with people over time. And that's what I was really hoping for is to develop relationships and know my patients over many, many, many years. Uh, and I've done that. But along with that comes preventative care. And what I've seen, you know, you say that and it's sort of, you know, everybody maybe thinks about it, but doesn't really look at it in depth. But what I've realized over time after practicing for many years is that we have all these medicines, we have all these treatments and all these tests and everything that we can do. And they can be expensive, they can have side effects, tons of things that you can do. Um, and they focus on that when you do your medical training. You know, it's called medicine you know, for a reason because we're trained to give medicine, but really food, sleep, exercise, that should be your medicine. And I can't tell you how many times I would see people who would make some changes and their diabetes would go away or their high blood pressure would go away. Or they'd lose weight, no longer be obese and their back pain and their knees would start getting better. And things that you wouldn't expect from lifestyle changes to get better. I've seen people whose uh, multiple sclerosis improved with a, with a very strict and healthy diet. Rheumatoid arthritis improved. I mean, those are things that you learn about that are supposed to get better, but you realize that the better you treat your body, the better your body treats you. So even if you have a non-curable debilitating disease, if you do the right things for yourself, you're always going to be better. And after years of seeing that, you know, it's hard not to have it sink in. Um, and so, you know, I, I've become a, a real true believer in just preventative health and, and learning how to uh, teach my patients that and, and persuade them the importance of it and get them to do it as, as best as possible. It's not easy. But. Yeah, I think that, you know, that really resonates with me as a physical therapist, because there's so many times we have patients come to our office and they say, yeah, my doctor says I need to lose weight, but I don't like, he didn't give me any type of direction. And I, I almost wish that doctors would take out their prescription pad and write exercise see a PT or see a personal trainer or who, whatever healthcare provider they decide to send them to. But it's so difficult that there's, there's so many barriers I think that patients face. And one of them is where do I even start? Like I weigh this much amount of weight or I have to lose this much amount of weight. Like I don't even know where to start. And if you don't give people direction and you don't give them the ability to um, find that self-efficacy, it's really difficult. The other thing that you said that really resonates with me is the fact that, you know, some uh, these lifestyle changes can make these diseases go away. So my dad was just recently, uh, about a year and a half ago, was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And, you know, he, I'd been hounding him for years to exercise. Once he got the diagnosis, he really took it seriously and he changed how he ate. He lost 50 pounds and his A1C went from like, 8.0 to 5.2. So, I mean, hypothetically, 
out of that diabetes range. And it was, it's, it's been such a profound experience for me to see him go through that because, you know, I was able to help encourage him, but he also had the motivation to really, um, figure out and find the people to help him. So, you know, he's seen a nutritionist, he's seen his primary care provider. I've obviously helped him up a little bit with his exercise, the exercise piece, but it is really amazing how something like the food that you eat and the way that you move your body, how um, robust those medicines can be in treating those conditions. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's terrific. That's great. And that is doing better. And you're absolutely right. And and I have written prescriptions for things like that, for, for moving and for getting out, you know, telling people I've written prescriptions for uh, Caribbean vacations because you know, they help with the stress. They don't usually fill that very often. But, yeah, but, you know, it makes it kind of fun to have it on a prescription pad. But that's important. You know, you're right. However, you can get somebody to do the right things. And part of the problems are that a lot of patients either don't see the importance of it or they don't feel that they're capable of doing it or they say i feel fine yeah i'm I'm 30 pounds overweight and i have high blood pressure and high cholesterol but i feel fine and so what they don't may not realize is such a slow progression they may feel fine but they don't realize that they could actually feel a lot better you know and that that they don't have any inherent complaints but if they change what they did and they exercise more and they ate right, that they would have more energy. They feel be- they'd feel better than they do. And even though they feel well, they can feel really well and, and just, you know, and feel really well for a lot longer too. And so yeah. that's where it really comes down to. But it's hard. It can be hard to convince people of that when, when what they're doing is good enough in their mind. Yeah. And my, you know, my dad has experienced that. And, you know, one of the things he always told me prior to being diagnosed with type two diabetes is how healthy he was. So that brings me to my next question. Healthy is a very broad definition. And I think even though you can look it up in the, in the dictionary and there's a very specific definition of it, everybody has kind of their own interpretation of the word healthy. How would you define somebody who is healthy? Yeah, and that's that's a great point. I love this. I actually wrote an article about this um, because it is a, a very vague and unhelpful term. As we say, you know, as a doctor, I want to make people healthy. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything to most people. And and yeah, as a definition that you brought up, the definition says the state of well-being. Well-being is healthy. It doesn't mean anything. It's just it's just using this another word for the same thing. So what I you know, and I, I so I thought about this a lot, trying to figure out what does that mean. So I never really found anything online or anything that I read that explained it. But but the way I can define it, and I think this is pretty valid, is that healthy is the state of not suffering and being at low risk for stop suffering. So really, when you're not healthy you're in pain, you're tired, you're not able to do the things you want to do, or you are feeling fine, but if you're a smoker and diabetes and feel fine, you are at high risk for getting a heart attack or a stroke or something that's going to cause you to suffer and not be able to do the things that you want to do. So I I think that defining uh, healthy as the state of not suffering and not being at risk for suffering really kind of hits all of the markers that we're trying to look for when we're talking about healthy. And it makes it easier for patients to understand it because really what you're trying to do, I, my job is trying to make people not suffer. I don't want them to suffer now or in the future. I'm trying to avoid that for them. And so uh, that's a big part of what I do. And so um, I think with that definition, it helps a little bit more because you're right, the patient saying you want patients to be healthy or them telling me that they want to be healthy doesn't mean anything. doesn't give them any direction, doesn't give them any goals. Uh, there's there's nothing there. And so I will also often say, if patients tell me they want to be healthy, I'd say, well, what does that mean to you? And, you know, I say, does, does it mean you want to be able to pick up your grandkids? Does it mean you want to run a 10K? Does it mean, you know, you want to have the energy to be able to get up and go to work in the morning and not feel so draggy all day that you can't, you can barely wait till the end of the day to go home and take a nap? Um, and so you know, there's a lot of different ways, but you, you want to make sure it's defined in the more specific way that they define it. It has to be personal to them. Me telling them that they need to be healthy doesn't, doesn't help anybody. 
I love that. I love the, that your definition is limiting suffering and decreasing people's risk for suffering because, you know, there are people that come into physical therapy clinics all the time who maybe don't have any medical comorbidities, but are definitely suffering. And that has limited their ability to participate in things that could help them be healthier. So I think that's a really profound definition. How do you inspire your patients to work towards this definition that you just talked about? It's not easy. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it often, it's very hard to do on just one visit. Uh, and, you know, it, it really doesn't, it, it can't come from, it has to come from them. You know, me telling them, hey, you have to exercise more, you got to eat right. If they don't want to do it, if they don't think they can do it, nothing's going to work. And so I really, I, I start with basically saying, how do you feel? And how do you think, how do you think your overall health is? Um, you know, is there anything you want me to work on? If you could improve one thing, what would it be? You know, let them guide it, right? It has to come from the patient. You know, I can give suggestions until the cows come home. I have thousands of things in all the years I've been doing a thing that I can give them as guidelines and suggestions and things that they can do. But coming from me doesn't help. It has to be something that they will be willing to do, that they want to do, and that they feel that it will have the results that they're looking for. And that's the absolute key to behavior changes. It has to be what's called self-efficacy. It has to be internal to themselves. Because if they don't want to do it, there's nothing, nothing's gonna, nothing's gonna change. And I have tons of patients who say, I say, well, you know, are, are, do you want to exercise? They go, oh, I know I need to. And they go, uh-uh. I didn't ask you if you need to, because you don't need to. You need to accept the consequences if you don't, but you don't need to. You know, you can stay doing the things you want to do. You have to want to. And, and by doing that, you know, realizing that if you do it, the consequences will likely be far less and you'll feel better. And, you know, they take it from a positive standpoint. Um, but the most important thing is that it has to come from the patient themselves, first and foremost. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other fat, more individual factors that I could focus on if you like. But, um, but that's, that is the, the first and foremost to have the conversation. How motivated are they to do it? How much do they want to do it? And are they willing to take the steps that are needed to make it? So, you know, um, some of the things that can happen to patients when they are, you know, maybe going through like a, the contemplation stage, let's say, of a behavioral change, they may face barriers that they see as hard for them to overcome. And as a primary care provider, you know, you serve as a gatekeeper and basically help people, give people resources or ideas of ways that they can maybe overcome some of these barriers. Can you just maybe give some examples of some barriers that your patients have voiced in your practice and how you as the primary care provider have helped them overcome those barriers, whether it be giving them resources, referring them to another provider, giving them words of encouragement. Um, how, how have you gone about that? Um, okay, yeah, so I mean, there, yeah, right, there are an extraordinary amount of barriers that, that can be there. Um, the biggest one I see, especially in our area, because we have a lot of uh, type A people in the, inside the Beltway, um, is time. You know, people always tell me that you know, time is their biggest barrier. And, uh, and so, you know, I'll tell them, well, time when it comes to exercise is a real thing, right? You know, you, you, you have to take time to exercise, but time for diet doesn't, it is not a real thing. That's a perceived thing because it takes just as long to eat a salad as it does to eat a bacon double cheeseburger, right? And so, and especially in this area, there are just as many healthy options that can be fast as there are fast foods around here. And so it's just a matter of choice when it comes to diet. It has to be in the forefront of your mind, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a time constraint. A lot of people use time as their limiting factor to say why they don't eat well. Time for food, it, do it doesn't have to be hard. There's a lot of resources out there too. There are plenty of healthy 
food services that will deliver food. They'll, they'll make it for you and bring it to you and you'll just have to heat it up and they're healthy and better for you than, you know, some other options that are out there. They, you know, they will, um, you know, they can get food delivered like Blue Apron that is, you know, that you prepare, but you don't have to do the shopping. You know, there's a lot of ways around it. It's just a matter of choice. There's just as many choices that are healthy as there are that are um, and then when it comes to time for exercise, that's harder. But I also tell people, you don't have to do an hour and a half of exercise. They felt like, you know, hey, I used to exercise for an hour when I was 23 years old. Now I'm 60. Maybe I should start doing an hour again each day. But then that's also driving to the gym, exercising, and then showering afterwards. That's an hour and a half. I don't have that time. Let me check my email. You know, and then they do nothing and nothing has changed except that now they feel guilty for not doing the thing that they should do. So I tell them, you know, set the bar low. You know, you don't have to do an hour or an hour and a half of exercise. Five minutes is five minutes more than they are currently doing. And if you can do five minutes, you can probably do 10. I mean, the hardest part is just walking out the door. You don't even have to change your clothes, you know, for a simple exercise. Just a walk counts. Anything is better than nothing. And so I always try to take the standpoint that set the ball low and work your way up than, other than where everybody else has the, 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 the mentality to set the bar high and then miss the mark or do it for a couple of days and then stop. So, um, so that's one of the things. There's there so many barriers. There's, um, you know, family, you know, that people will say, oh, I, we only have fried chicken because that's all my kids will eat. Well, that's all the kids will eat because that's what you give them. You know, kids will eat what you put in front of them and they complain about it. They may not want it, but you can, you know, you don't have to, um, you know, they, they will eventually eat something. You know, they, they're smarter than you think. And if you give them good food, they will do it. And, and so feed them the food that you you would want them. You, can, you don't want to relegate them to the same position that you're in where you have diabetes and are overweight. Help them by helping yourself. Be the example. Um, or they'll say, you know, my wife's not interested in it. You, you know, everybody in the house has to be on board uh, and and help out. And um, you know, there, there, there's there's um, you know, there's also the concept. You know, everybody, you know, they feel like at the end of the day they're tired and they feel like they need a reward because they had a long day. And so they want to have that ice cream. So, okay, well, you, you want to have something sweet. It doesn't have to be ice cream. Have frozen blueberries, have a sorbet or a low calorie thing, you know, replace instead of depriving yourself. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of barriers, but there's a lot of options around it. There is no, there, there's never been a patient that's come to me where I said, I had nothing for you. That's it. You know, you really are in a tough spot. There's always an option. There's always something you can do. Yeah, I think that, you know, as physical therapists, one of the biggest th barriers that people say for us, too, is the time factor. I don't have time to exercise or, you know, I don't have time to do the exercises you've prescribed to me. So I think one of the things that I've gotten really creative at is how can we integrate exercise into your day without you even realizing you're exercising? So even recommending taking the stairs versus taking the elevator, telling them, you know, if you go for a 10 minute walk, Every single day, you're going to meet the, you know, ADA guidelines for physical activity. Like, you know, again, like you said, start setting the bar low and working your way high. I do think people think that when you say exercise, they traditionally are like, oh, I have to go to the gym and I have to work out for one hour and then I go home. And um, that is obviously not the only way a person can exercise so i think that i don't even call it exercise unless we I just say movement movement the body needs to move. that's all we need movement you know yeah gardening is fine i tell them i'm bocce is fine i don't care darts you know whatever as long as you're standing up and moving i'll, I'll, I'll take it you know whatever yep. it is and, yeah, I, and then uh, taking the conference call while you're walking you're walking back and pacing in your office counts while you're standing up or you know i have a, i have a exercise a, a bike desk in my office where I put my computer and you know my phone everything on top of the counter of the bike and I, I cycle while I'm writing my notes or calling patients back and you know, that's a way of getting my work done and exercising at the same time it's great yeah I love it yeah I think that you also make a good point of maybe even not even using the word exercise and just rebranding it as just movement because people do get a little bit freaked out 
and they have this um, preconceived notion about what exercise is. So I think that that's really good advice. How do you another word to a lot of people? Yeah. yeah. How do you, as a primary care provider, work with other healthcare professionals to optimize patient health? Because obviously, this is a team effort, right? You there's lots of providers that can help, and you you as the physician, you can't do everything for the patient. So what? How do you work with other healthcare professionals to help your patients? I'm a big believer in uh, dietitians. Uh, I love when patients go to dietitians. And definitely, I, I think everybody, no matter how good you think your diet is, there's probably still something you don't know and can do better. And so I, I think going to a dietitian, if you have any goals that you want to improve on, um, I think a dietitian is terrific. Uh, and a good dietitian, I would say, is not somebody who just says, eat this, don't eat that. That is somebody who is a also a behavior change expert. There's tools to help do better. Uh, big believer in physical therapy. Uh, if they have an injury or anything like that, I spend many, many physical therapy. I love the, the, the idea of just, again, moving, having somebody to keep you honest and get you moving uh, and, and help get you stronger, better, whatever it is that you need. Uh, trainers, you know, all, you know, there's all kinds of different things. Again, patients be willing to want to, to do these things, and, and money is an issue. Very often, insurance you know, cover physical therapy, but they won't cover dietitians or trainers. But if they have the means, or an exercise class, whatever it is, um, having somebody that you're accountable to really helps on a regular basis. A coach, a life coach, a health coach, you know, how, however it looks, it, it has to be something that makes sense to the patient. But having basically an accountability partner, somebody who can help tell you what it is that you should be doing and then help you get there and be accountable to that person for doing it. Because when we're accountable to ourselves, things don't happen. When we're accountable to somebody else, it's much more likely to get there. Yeah, and I think that the research backs that up too. I know in a lot of chronic conditions where they've studied exercise as an inter intervention, they found that supervised exercise is more effective in, you know, decreasing A1C, de uh, improving blood pressure measurements than people who are unsupervised. So definitely something to think about as other healthcare providers are thinking about this question is if your patient is having a hard time moving or don't know where to start, or they're having a hard time with their changing their diet, having somebody to help them be accountable and to guide them is definitely something that has been shown to be effective in the literature. So obviously when you are consulting these healthcare providers, whether it be a dietitian, whether it be a physical therapist, a life coach, a personal trainer, um, the person still has to be willing to change their behavior. <laughs> so what are the keys to behavior change? So um, like, like I said before, it was that self-efficacy, they have to want to do it. But once you get them bought in, there are, you know, a, a certain set number of things that that we always want to approach on. And one of the things that is probably the single most important thing for behavior change that is not intuitive is sleep. And I've said uh, for the last 20 years, I've learned that if, instead of being actually a primary care doctor, I now consider myself to be a sleep doctor because if you don't get sleep, everything falls apart. You don't have motivation. You don't have the energy to do the things you're supposed to do. You can't think clearly. You make uh, hormones that make you crave fatty foods and eat more poorly and not want to get up and move around. Sleep is just the, the critical foundation to really all of health and healthcare, uh, and especially behavior change. So I do a pretty detailed sleep history on anybody with that comes to my door, really. But if they have any conditions, certainly the chronic ones, high blood pressure, heart disease, stro uh, strokes, depression, uh, you know, anxiety, uh, obesity, diabetes, you, know, you can make a good case that all of these conditions are really sleep disorders. Very strong association that the less sleep you get, the more likely you are to have any one of these conditions. Um, and so I, I start from uh, the foundation of sleep. That everyone should get at least seven to nine hours of sleep a night. That's, the, that's where the 
vast majority of people need. And it has to be seven to nine hours of quality sleep. So you can't be interrupted multiple times, tossing and turning, um, loud sounds around. You, know, you need at the very minimum seven hours of quality sleep a night to be able to do the other things you need to do to maintain good health or to become healthy. So I always start from that as, as the absolute critical foundation. If you don't start there, nothing else is going to work. Nothing else is going to work. I really appreciate your comment on sleep now that I have another, have a newborn. So, you know, in the, no, beginning, well you had men- the beginning, you had mentioned my assistant that was joining me. For those of you that are uh, listening to this podcast, I had my daughter, Vivian, who's five months old, sitting on my lap at the beginning of this interview. So, but, you know, as a new, as a new parent, uh, you really start to appreciate the lack of sleep that can happen. But when I was in PT school, man, I bragged about how little I slept at night because I was working so hard and studying hard and playing hard. And now I look back at that and I'm like, that was the dumbest thing to brag about. But when you're that young and you are able to maybe go a little bit longer without sleep, I don't think you necessarily appreciate how much lack of sleep does impact a person's health. And I wish I could go back to my 22 year old self and say, Hey, you need to, you need to get your eight hours. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And, and you're right also that, you know, when you're that age, you can get away with it a little better, you know, as when you get into the advanced age that I am, you know, it really starts to take its toll. And so, yeah, as the older you get, the more important it gets, but it is still important. You might not feel it as much when you're 22, but it still impacts you. It still absolutely has a role and it, it you know, you're not going to do as well in school. You're not going to do as well as at work. Uh, it, they, there's been studies that show that people who get more sleep make more money. Because you're motivated, you're more intelligent when you sleep well, you remember things better, you're just more efficient, you're more efficient uh, being uh, at everything that you do. So it really makes a huge difference. Pretty much, I say that anything that you want out of life, unless it's more TV, comes to you with more sleep. So it really has to be a critical critical part of any medical You'd mentioned that you take a pretty extensive sleep history on your patients. What does a, can you tell us a little bit, expand on that a little bit more? What, what types of questions do you ask your patients to really understand their sleep habits and how do you decipher some of that information into kind of how you're going to treat them? So, I mean, it depends on what they're coming in for. Um, you know, if they're doing well, happy, healthy, thin, blood pressure, vitals, and everything are all great. And I ask them how much they sleep. They say, I'm, I get eight hours a night. I say, do you feel rested? They say, yeah, I usually just move on. But if there's any other conditions or anything that I have a suspicion for, um, I'll, I'll say, well, how many hours a night do you get for, for sleep? And they'll say, you know, six or seven or something. And then I'll, I'll say, what time do you, Put the lights out. And what time do you get up for the day? Um, because a lot of people will say, "I'm in bed for eight hours, but I only got six hours." Well, we're terrible judges of how much we actually slept, and we tend to be off by several hours. When they do actual sleep studies and look at brain waves and how much you're actually sleeping versus how much did you think you slept, we're off by hours, and so we tend to make it based on how did we feel when we got up in the morning? Oh, I felt terrible. I must have only gotten five hours. It doesn't necessarily work. So I asked them, how, how long are they in bed? The lights out. How consistent are they with their bedtime and wake times? Because that's also really important. There's something called social jet lag, where if you go to bed at 10 and wake up at six every day during the week, but then go to bed at two and wake up at 10 during the weekends, that's like crossing four time zones. And so it's very similar to jet lag. And so even though you're getting eight hours, you're still going to feel pretty crappy. You know, you're going to be tired and you're going to have the effects of not sleeping. So even just getting eight hours is not as important as being consistent with those eight hours too. And I asked, you know, do you feel rested when you wake up? Do you take a nap in the afternoon? Um, do you uh, do you get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? And are you able to fall back to sleep? Does your uh, partner say that you snore or ever stop breathing or gasp? Or does your partner snore keep you up? Uh, and so, yeah, and then and then there's something called the um, Epworth Sleepiness Scale, where you go through these ten points of you know 
do you fall asleep in the afternoon? Uh, you know, when you're lying down, do you fall asleep reading a book? Do you fall asleep reading TV? Do you fall asleep as a passenger in a car, sitting at uh, you know at lunch talking to somebody, which is a big red flag if you're falling asleep while talking to somebody? Uh, in all these situations, so there's there's a lot of sleep history that you can get. It really depends on the person, what their complaints are, uh, and how how much I suspect sleep being a problem. But at the very least, I always want to make sure how, how much sleep do they get and do they feel rested in the middle of the night? Yeah, it's very common that when I treat people with chronic pain that their sleep is terrible. Absolutely. And then, and then of course, of course, the pain is keeping them up at night and then they can't sleep. And then, you know, sleep helps to heal the body. But if you can't sleep, then it's really difficult to heal your body. So it's, you know, kind of this vicious cycle that people with pain are in sometimes. So how can people optimize their sleep quality? And uh, do you, when you are treating people that have chronic pain problems, do you give them different advice than other people who maybe have chronic diseases? Well, I consider chronic pain to be a chronic disease, but um, you know, it, it is, you know, again, it's a form of suffering and, and, and it is, chronic pain is a real condition. You know, we may not be able to do a blood test or do a, a CT to see a problem if they're in chronic pain, you know, that's a real problem. It's a horrible problem. Um, and so, yeah, I consider that to be a real problem. And, and also, as you said, you know, chronic pain and sleep, there's a very strong association. It's a one-to-one, -one. less sleep you get, the more, more pain you have, you know, just, it's absolutely correlated. Um, and so I, again, you know, make sure that they do that sleep history. This is a whole going off on another tangent, but there's, there's something called sleep hygiene, which are all the things that you can do to make sure you get better sleep. And there, there's a whole host of them, but um, one, you know, trying to get some exercise during the day, but not too close to bedtime, keeping a consistent sleep and wake time, uh, you know, having, um, uh, you know, having a quiet bedroom without the TV on and out any electronics in the bedroom, um, limiting alcohol at night, limiting caffeine to only the morning. You know, those are all uh, a lot of things. There's, there's many, many, many other things, but doing sleep hygiene really is a, uh, an important part of making sure you maintain good sleep and, and teaching patients that as best you can uh, can really, really help get better sleep. There's medications. There's not great ones. There's a couple that we can use. Things like Ambien and uh, Valium, some of that actually are terrible sleep aids. All they, they really don't make you sleep. They basically, basically make you pass out. Sort of, sort of like alcohol. You know, if you drink too much that you sleep for 10 hours, you're not going to wake up feeling good. Same thing with those sleep aids. Um, so there's, there's really only melatonin can help fall asleep, but there's not a lot of good sleep aids out there. It's mostly habits and behaviors uh, that you do that help you get better sleep. Problem is the later it gets at night, the dumber we all get. And so we make bad choices. We might have good intentions at three in the afternoon, but by 10 o'clock at night, you're like, ah, I just, I'll just keep checking my email or just, well, I'll just watch one more episode. And so it, it does get tougher, but it, it is important. Yeah, I think one of the things I've really appreciated about sleep hygiene since I've become a parent yeah. is the importance of having a bedtime routine. And, you know, I, I started a bedtime routine with, with my kids to help them sleep. And I was thinking to myself, why don't I have a bedtime routine? And that has definitely helped with my quality of sleep. And I know that when I've treated patients with chronic pain, that's a suggestion that I'll make to them is, you know, I know it's difficult for you to get sleep right now, but if you can cue your brain with just doing the same things every single night, a lot of times that can at least help you maybe get into a deeper sleep a little bit earlier to try to help maybe decrease some of this pain problem that you're having in the sleep problem. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, there's, a, there's a saying in medicine where uh, when you go through pediatrics that uh, kids are not just little adults. But after I had my, my own kid, I realized that actually in a lot of ways that may be true, but adults are just big kids and that it may look different, but we need the same things. And we tell our kids, you better go to bed. Well, yeah, we, we should be doing the same thing. You know, all the things we tell our kids, we should be, you know, doing the same things and, and leading by example. It's really important. Yeah, I agree. I think that we, 
we always get, we always make kids do these things and then we don't follow our advice that we want our kids to do. And uh, kind of like, you know, healthcare providers will give advice to their patients and then they don't follow their own advice. I would, I mean, I always try to follow my own advice and I think a lot of my friends do too, but the saying is that sometimes we are our own worst patients or sometimes we are our own worst advice followers. So. I always think it's hard. I can't imagine when I see physicians, primary care physicians, especially who are not taking care of themselves. I, I always wonder, I'm like, how can you tell, say something to people 20 times a day, every day and not have it sink in. You know, just keep on saying it and saying it and saying it. And you know, it just, it's gotta be part of your ethos. So you, you want, then you're not gonna be effective if you're not if you're not following your own advice. And two, it probably tells me you don't believe it. If you don't believe in it, you're not gonna get your patients to do it. Yeah, it's really hard to get behavior change out of your patients if you aren't modeling that behavior. Um, so, and then we had talked about some of the other things. I think I had touched on a couple of them. And, and one is, you know, setting your goals low. As we all have really high expectations of ourselves and always think of ourselves as still that uh, virile and energetic 23-year-old and that, that, that you have to let go of that a little bit, or at least at first, to get back into doing things. And so setting, setting goals low and make sure that they are reasonable and attainable or even so low that it's almost ridiculous not to follow them. One minute, you know, or two minutes on a treadmill, if that's all you feel you can do, or that's what you need to do to get yourself doing it, then just do that. Because like I said, getting on the treadmill is the hardest part. Once you're doing it, it's not so bad. Um, and then, uh, you know, re replacing things rather than depriving yourself. So if you say, I'm not going to have dessert, say, you know, you're going to say 10 times, I'm not going to have a dessert. I'm not going to have dessert. I'm not going to have dessert. You're probably still going to have dessert. Yeah? Um, you know, it's hard to change those habits. But if instead of having the, you know, bowl of ice cream that, like I said, you had uh, a, a peach or some frozen blueberries, something that is maybe not quite as satisfying, but still is somewhat satisfying, you know, that's going to make sure that it make it a lot easier to do the things that you want to do. And again, none of these is perfect. Nothing's going to be 100%. We're just trying to make it easier to make the changes that you want to do. But it's never going to be uh, perfect. Um, and then, you know, you, you have to measure the process. If you don't know how you're doing, you're not going to be able to continue doing it. So if you're trying to lose weight, weighing yourself once a week or more, you know, people who weigh themselves once a week, lose more weight than people who don't weigh themselves. People who weigh themselves every day, lose more weight than people who weigh themselves once a week. Just just by getting on the scale makes a difference in outcomes because it puts it more in front of your mind. It keeps you, keeps you aware of what's happening. People who might measure the blood pressure at home, if they have high blood pressure, do better. People who have diabetes, measure their blood sugars, do better. So any, any process, anything that you're trying to improve, if you measure the process, you're going to improve. So, you know, like I said, measuring it, whatever, however that looks, if it's number of steps you're taking, uh, number of times a week that you're exercising, number of minutes, how many miles you've gone, however you want to do that, but you want to make sure that you're measuring it in some way. And then, um, you know, really shouting out your goals to the world. Uh, as we already talked about, people are much more likely to do things for others than we are to ourselves. We don't want to look bad. We want to be honest to our word and true to our word. And so if we tell ourselves something, we're like, eh, it's just kidding. You know, but if we tell, you know, our family, our friends, put it out on Facebook or or uh, TikTok or whatever it is that, hey, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna start walking two miles a day, you know, now you really gonna you're gonna be held to held accountable for what you want to do. And people are going to ask, hey, how are you doing with this? Have you have you kept up with that? And we want to be honest. We want to be true to our word. And so it's much more likely that you're going to make that happen. So announcing what you want to do uh, out to everybody makes a big difference. Um, and then along the same lines of sleep, something that's not really that intuitive, but really makes a difference is, is alcohol. And that was big during COVID. People started drinking a lot more. And it takes its toll. It makes you more tired in the morning, you need the same amount of sleep, it impairs the quality of your sleep, it just takes away motivation, 
it really has a huge impact on your mood, your energy, your quality of life. And it may feel good for a couple of hours, but the next day is significantly worse than it would have been if you didn't have it. The net is a negative. And so not that you can't drink, but alcohol should be kept to the weekends, or kept to parties and social events. You know, drinking every night is detrimental to almost any goal that you want to achieve. Yeah, I think I have a better appreciation for the the negative impacts alcohol can have on your body after being married to a medical examiner. He oh, right. sees a lot of people that have that have chronic alcohol problems, and it's amazing how how much systemically alcohol, long term alcohol use, really affects your body. I mean, it's I never really appreciated that. I mean, you always hear that if you drink a lot, it's bad, but when you Actually, when I hear him describe the physical changes in organs, in the liver, in the, in the stomach, in the brain from alcohol use that he sees on people who die from alcoholism, it's just like, wow. I mean, it gives you, it gives me a better appreciation. So I really, I really appreciate your comment on alcohol. And again, right, everything in moderation, you know, it's not like drinking alcohol is bad, but if you're using it every single night to fall asleep, well, not only is that going to affect your sleep, but it's also going to affect your overall health. Right. As we talk and mood, and and just yep. like I said, enjoyment of life. And it doesn't even have to be what we call alcoholism, you know, two or three drinks, especially as we get older, you know, two or three drinks on the weekend, on Friday or Saturday night. That's fine. But if you're doing it every night, it's a lot of calories. It makes you lose your inhibitions. And so you're probably going to eat, worse after you have that drink or more likely to have dessert or something and again you're not gonna you're gonna wake up not feeling as well the next day and not being as motivated and and it, it takes its toll on everybody so it doesn't even have to be alcoholism so you're drinking a six-pack every night is, is not what i'm talking about even even just two or three every night adds up and, and it adds up in everybody i have a lot of patients say no no it doesn't affect me it's not going to affect me just give, just give it a week just try for one week without see how you feel and invariably virtually across the board everybody says oh you're right yeah i felt better i did i did feel better a lot of times they say well i went back to drinking again because it's a hard thing to stop but they did feel better at least you know so yeah at least they, at least they have that that uh yeah. that that outcome that they were that you had asked them for you know, the other thing that I would say that has been helpful for um, my patients has been developing consistency. It's always easier to adapt a behavioral change if it's just a part of your day, whether that be, you know, like you had said, get, getting to the gym is the hardest part, but nobody ever regrets going to the gym. So integrating these things, just like with um, a bedtime routine having a routine every single day of things that you do every single day, eating at the same time, even if it's not the same exact thing every day, but eating at the same time, moving at the same time. Um, that, that has been helpful for a lot of my patients because then they develop the habit and they almost feel weird if they don't actually do that. And, and you can make it happen by linking it to a habit that you already have. So, you know, somebody has trouble remembering their medication. So do you brush your teeth every day? They say, of course. You know, it's like, okay, take your pill, stick it on top of your toothpaste. You know, then, then you won't forget. It's right there. You've linked it to something you do. Um, or, or, you know, if you have the same breakfast, you know, stick it on top of your, your milk or your cereal bowl or whatever, whatever it is. We all have habits. We all are consistent in some way. And so if you link something new that you want to do to a habit you already have, it's going to make it a lot, a lot more likely to happen yeah agreed trying to uh trying to optimize the habits that we do have and incorporating things so that we're again removing some of these barriers that we had talked about before so there's one question that we ask all of the people that come on our podcast yeah. and that is if you were to give yourself your 25 year old yourself advice what advice would you give to your 25 year old self so many things. I will first say that there is zero chance that my 25-year-old self would listen to me. Um, so I think that that's, you know, a, a, a kind of a moot point. Uh, but uh, 
looking back, what would I, there's so many things that, I, that you know, not, not that I have regrets, but that, you know, you, you always think, oh, how would it be if I did this or did that? How would things be, be different? You know, I, I've got a good life, so I can't complain. Um, but uh, what would I tell my 25-year-old self? Uh, actually, I would probably go back and tell myself not to, not to take myself so seriously. Um, not that I was always really a serious person, but certain things I did take very seriously. And, you know, I think I probably have, I lightened up and I've done that much, much better as, as I've seasoned a bit. I think that's very wise advice. That, that I feel like has been something I've noticed too, as I've gotten older. And I mean, I'm, I'm not that old, but I definitely feel like, uh, I took a lot of things really seriously in my twenties that I probably did not take so seriously so well thank you so much for joining us today and um we appreciate you taking the time to come on our podcast and talk about this very important topic um where can people reach you if they want to contact you um and follow up with you on this podcast is there an email or on social media that people can reach out to you uh well i'm on i'm on linkedin and uh, they can uh, check out our website. Uh, if you just look up Northern Virginia Family Practice, which is in Arlington, Virginia, the website's nvafamilypractice.com. Uh, and that has all the information and contact information that you would want if you wanted to look for that. Uh, and there's a media site on there that is a collection of all these town halls and uh, articles that I've written and uh, blogs, posts, and lots of different uh, media outreach that we've done. Uh, and so I think it's a great place, a great resource for how to learn more about preventive health and, and learn more about me and our practice. Perfect. And we'll link those into um, the show notes as well for everybody. Well, thanks again. And thank you for joining us today. And remember to stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to leave us your questions and comments at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com.